And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Seventy-four days since we've had an incident here at the bunker. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here. Jason Hutt here, back in the big easy chair, firmly ensconced behind microphone number three at World Headquarters here at Sci-Fi For Me. I am the editor-in-chief. Thank you for being here and joining us. I appreciate Mrs. Boss filling in yesterday. She did handily. Uh, she did handily. She did well. The chat is open for those of you who are with us live. Uh, if you are not live, if you're in replay, you can always leave a comment. You can send us an email live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. If you are listening to us as a podcast, there are several platforms where you can find us. We want to welcome our listeners, our new listeners in Brazil. Looks like we picked up a few people over there. So always glad to see new territories show up in that map. We are broadcasting live to YouTube, Facebook, and Odyssey. So if you are so inclined to, uh, to check out the alt tech, then... Uh, odyssey we're available over there as well all right so uh real quick uh this news popped up today just as we were going through breaking news demi lovato is gonna go hunt ufos a new unscripted investigation series at peacock so there is that we'll have to have to keep an eye on that so a couple of weeks ago, we had author Eric Leland here on the program, and he was, uh, he was talking about his new book, Inhuman, which basically sets up a, uh, a supernatural horror story set in the Vietnam War. And uh, as we went through that, uh, that conversation, uh, the subject of mental health came up, especially with regard to uh, the, 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 the veterans uh, in our midst. And now it seems like we've got a little bit of an opportunity to expand on that with our, our next guest. Peter Topside joins us uh, today to talk about his new book. Welcome, sir. Thank you for having me, Jason. So let me, let me start here because the book is called Preternational, and uh, there's, a, there's a copy there of the cover, although I do think that this presentation is probably uh, a little bit more um, engaging <laughs> Uh, is this, I think, I think I saw it. This is Moose. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, your official, your official booth, babe. Is that it? Absolutely. Can't get much better than that. <laughs> so welcome to the program. All right. So your new book, Preternational Evolution, this is the second book in a series. I believe it's a trilogy. I have that right? Yes, sir. So let's start with what the book is about. So the premise of the book is you have this, this really like well put together, you know, thriving, thriving economy sort of town called Meadowsville. Um, and Meadowsville, like I said, it's a really nice place to live. It's got about like 75,000 citizens, everything you could want or needs in this perfect little town. Um, however, 
the town has this very serious issue in a creature called uh, Mr. Smith. And Mr. Smith has is, is, uh, basically been around since the start of the town. Um, and it you know, murders the citizens, it terrorizes the town, but because a lot of the town's economy is based off the tourism that this, you know, bona fide, you know, urban legend brings into them, uh, they just let it happen. And they're, they're aware of it. They're, they know people are getting hurt and, you know, all these terrible things are happening, but they just are kind of putting, you know, fi their financial gain above the well-being of the citizens. And the premise of the first book specifically is um, we find out more about the origins of this creature and it engages several of the residents in Meadowsville. And each of these residents has their own kind of traumatic upbringing or experiences, some with the creature, some on their own. And they all engage this creature and sort of band together to try to kind of end the, the madness going on in Meadowsville. Um, and it, it uh, the book honestly took me about almost 25 years to write. I went through several versions. I, I really put a lot of time and effort into it. So it can be read several different ways, kind of surface level as a, uh, just a good horror story, but then it, there's a lot of, um, as you were you know, mentioning mental health, there's a lot of psychological principles as far as how some of the characters are playing off each other. Um, and there's just a lot of little hidden gems throughout the book. So you can kind of dive deeper into it and, right. uh, you know, have some fun if you want. So the the definition of preternational, we were talking about this before we went on the air, according to mm -hmm. Merriam-Webster here, existing outside of nature, exceeding what's natural or regular, inexplicable by ordinary means. And you were saying that this is a word that pops up in Bram Stoker's Dracula quite a bit. Yeah, and that was a book I, I really wish I had read sooner because um, that's kind of like the, the, the canon classic for, for vampires. And, yeah. and Mr. Smith um, and the other creature, Blackheart, these are, you know, um, initially vampires. And they, as the trilogy goes on, progress into other sorts of, you know, beings. Um, but, you know, initially, for the sake of it, they're at the core, you know, vampires. And, and Dracula is, you know, no matter what, what movie, book, or any type of reiteration of a vampire, it's some of it's paying homage to, to that, that original book by Bram Stoker. Sure. Um, and, and I finally got to read it, you know, um, a few years back. And uh, I was having trouble figuring out a name for, for this book I was, had been spending all this time writing. And I'm like, preternatural, that just, that's a really cool word. And it encompasses the whole premise of the story, like all these really insane, weird things happening. And obviously, you know, leading up to the culmination at the end of the trilogy. Um, so I just, I like the word, so I just, I ran with it. Well, now, you say you've been working on the first book for about 25 years. You don't look very, very old at all. <laughs> What, did <laughs> you start? You. Did you start when you were nine? I mean, what was the impetus for the beginning of this story that it's taken <clears> you that long? Because you had to, you had to have been, what, in your teens, realistically, when when this thing started. So where did the idea come from? I've, I've, um, I had a very rough upbringing, and um, you know, we can go into more of that however you want. Um, uh, and I had had a very serious injury when I was about seven years old, and I had almost died a couple times. I broke my my femur, and I was stuck in the hospital for two months with a um, an eighteen inch screw that they drilled through my leg while I was wide awake. So that was, you know, again, think of like a saw movie. That's about what it was. So oh. pretty pretty intense. And then of course it had to come out, you know, six weeks later. 
Um, but I was in the hospital for two months. I had a lot of complications. I was on and off pain meds. I was having really terrible withdrawals from those. Um, and at that point in time, <clears throat> there, there really wasn't any like standard, I don't think for, for like mental health services for, right. for somebody my age. So um, I was just kind of stuck there as there was a bad winter that had happened. So even like there were a lot of times my family couldn't make it because of the weather. And I had all this, you know, I'm just stuck in the bed. You can't move. You're almost dying every couple of days. Like it was a really horrible thing um, that I still have some, you know, PTSD uh, issues from to this day um, over, you know, 30 years later almost. Um, so one of the things that really helped me get through it was I would funnel a lot of my feelings and emotions into these, these, you know, at that point they were short stories, little one, two page things, you know. Um, that that were just tossaways, but they kept me occupied and they really helped me kind of manage all the the depression and the anxiety I was experiencing at that point. Right. Um, and then over the years, I would just this, for some reason that just kept sticking with me. Like you have to write this book. Like there's some real big importance to in your life to get this done. Um, so I went through, like I said before, several different versions. Um, uh, you know, and I just kept working on it until I was happy with the, the, the premise, the characters, the way the story was progressing. And I, I never really intended writing more than just that first book. Um, but then when I finished it, I just, I was sitting there and I'm like, there's, there's more for these characters to do. Like there's some really cool stuff left in this town of Meadowsville for Blackheart and Smith and Alexandra and Christian and David, like all these characters they just organically, like I was just the facilitator. They were, they were, you know, running their own show. I was just putting the pen to paper, it's, but it was a, it was a pretty cool experience in that sense. So is, is Meadowsville going to be your equivalent to Stephen King's Maine where, you know, yeah. everything Dairy happens. In the, yes. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, I remember the, the first horror novel I ever read was Stephen King's It. And growing up, I was always a huge fan of horror. And growing up in the 80s, you had some of the the best horror movies of all time, honestly. You had these insane ideas that, you know, you just didn't need to make sense. They were just like magic on film. You had like Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which was a classic movie. It's amazing. Makes no sense. But it is, again, one of the best. And you didn't (laughs) care. It was was great. Have you signed Um, the petition for the sequel? I have not, but I am very much in support of it. I will, I will we, take a public stance on that. For those, for those who are who are uh, interested in that, we had that story on Good Morning Multiverse. I want to say this past weekend, and the link to the the link to the Change petition is there. Apparently, this is a thing. People really want a sequel. There's no reason it shouldn't have been. I mean, you look at how many of the um, Again, I'll use the kind of the, the main classics, your, your Puppet Masters, your Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween. These movies have 10, 20 sequels, but yeah. Killer Clowns, everybody knows that movie. Everybody loves that movie. Uh, you know, why, did, why didn't that ever get a sequel? What, what was holding up, you know, the, well, the production of, of this thing? We're getting a new Scream, so never say never, I guess, right? <laughs> That's true, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at your bio, and it says here that you're a chef and a baker, but also yes, a sir. clinical exercise physiologist by trade. Mm-hmm. So how does how does that reconcile into 
horror writer. I mean, are you are you channeling these you know secret urges and impulses that that come up when you're when 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 the pie goes wrong or something or how how does how does all of that work? Yeah, if a recipe goes wrong, I just I throw it out the window. I just I'll take a red crayon <laughs> paper, make some really disturbing <laughs> images, and you know, right? It, it is what it is. My wife's made peace with it, you know. <laughs> Um, but no, it's, um, going back to when I, when I had that injury, when I was seven with my leg, it, it really fascinated me when I was going through the process of physical therapy, which I was in for a solid year, you know, three, four times a week for two hours at a clip. Like, again, I was in bad shape and it took me a long time to rebound from the injury. And I was even on restrictions for a couple of years after, but it fascinated me about that profession and given I'm not a physical therapist, but we're kind of along similar wavelength. Um, but as I grew up and I got more into caring about my health, because I think being that close to, to dying at a young age, it really kind of made me, you know, self-aware of, of I want to make sure I'm never in a position again where I, you know, if I have an injury, I'm not laid out for, you know, a couple of years again, or right. if I, uh, I'm in a doctor's office. I, I don't want to be afraid of being told that there's these horrible things wrong with me that I could have prevented. Like it just made me very aware. And I, and I started reading books about exercise science, um, kinesiology, things like that, you know, at a, a fairly young age. And then I just through high school knew I wanted to continue with it. And then I went on to, you know, get my bachelor's, then an advanced certification. And I've been in the field uh, a little over 15 years now. So it's, uh, you know, as far as related to horror, it doesn't, but, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the quickie, you know, background on, on my career, but, um, but it's a, it's a really unique, um, you know, field in healthcare. And, and, and I know it's kind of um, had a slow progress in, in the time I've been, you know, blessed enough to be in it, but it's, you know, there's a lot of good talents out there. There's a lot of really intelligent colleagues. I work with hundreds of great, great people in the field and it's uh it's, you know, a, a very important part of healthcare that, that tends to be overlooked. Well, and you mentioned, you know, having an interest in this coming out of your accident and, and the PTSD. And, and it almost seems like, you know, you, <laughs> with, with the baking and, and the chef and, mm -hmm. and the, 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 the physiology stuff, it almost sounds like all of that is a mix of coping Almost. I don't, I don't, I don't want to lump all of that in, but does it, does it feel like maybe that, because you talk about the horror, the horror writing almost as a therapeutic type of practice. Right. Is, is all of the different things that you're interested in, is all of that sparked by what happened to you when you were, when you were seven, you think? Um, I mean, that was definitely a big part of it. Um, and, and, you know, aside from the injury in my leg, you know, I grew up with, um, you know, a very abusive alcoholic uh, parent. And, um, you know, uh, my father was a very mean person. And uh, he ran a very, uh, I don't want to use the old expression tight ship, but he ran the house a certain way that everything had to be, you know, a certain way. Yeah. Um, he would, uh, you know, I have one sibling and, and he would accuse her and I of, of lying about everything. He was, he was, um, you know, I learned later on, he was basically psychotic and I'm not using that just as a general term. Like my, my therapists over the years have said he was basically having psychotic tendencies and the alcohol was just making him that much worse. Mm. <clears throat> um, so the upbringing at home was not good. Um, you know, I'd say every, every, at least every couple of weeks, our house would be trashed. There was 
police at the house, uh, you know, just a lot of bad stuff. And that, that went on obviously until I pretty much was, was into college and on my way out, which I did at a young age. Um, but even, even going through school, um, I had very severe anxiety. And again, I never really had any professional help after my legs. So all those feelings, all those, uh, the anxiety just kind of pulled up in me and I just did what I had to, to get through it. So there were times I was, a you know, going through high school, I would um, abuse medications and use alcohol just to get through. Um, Mm. But I was always, you know, considered very shy, but at, you know, nobody really understood. It was just a really horrible bunch of circumstances, um, you know, between school and home. And even, you know, I was a big part of our church growing up and we had a lot of abusive, um, you know, elders and priests that we dealt with that were, that were very um, outright nasty to, to, again, my sister and I and our family and did a lot of really, you know, bad things to us. And no matter basically, you know, what day or what time it was in, in the 24 seven cycle, I was, I was getting, you know, smacked around from one Avenue or another. So right. it, it, um, it, it was, there was just a lot to process and things like, again, the writing, the, the cooking and baking, um, you know, even the dedication to, to, you know, really learning as much as I could in college and getting into a good career groove. Um, I funneled the anxiety a certain way into these really healthy avenues, sure. but at the same time, I wasn't coping with them fully up until I'd say a good, maybe six, seven years ago, pretty recent, um, was there a po- was yeah. there a point when you recognized that writing <clears throat> the stories was therapeutic for you? Was a good creative outlet? Was there the, was there an aha moment where you're like, oh, I kind of feel better now that I've written all of this, you know, terrible, 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 evil vampire stuff <laughs> over here? I feel much better now. Was 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 there any kind of a moment like that where? You had that realization? I think, and I'll be very honest with you, like I said, I, I was planning to write the one book. It was just always a, a, a kind of a lifelong goal to get that one book out. Mm-hmm. And then the second one flowed. And then when I did the second one, the rough draft of the third book just flowed out. And I, I didn't know how I was going to finish the books. I, again, didn't anticipate more than one. So the going beyond that was just like a an unknown, you know, uh, area to, to dive into. But, um, I, I felt a little bit better each time I finished the, like book one and two, but really until I wrote the conclusion of the third book and, you know, made it the definitive ending, that's when I really felt like this, this was a really awesome therapeutic experience. Like it was that, yeah, as you said, the aha moment, like, Mm -hmm. wow. Okay, you know, I did this and I got past all this other stuff in my life. Like, this is a big accomplishment on a lot of levels. Now, are these self-published or are you going through a particular imprint? Uh, No, these are these are all self-published. Okay, all right. Do you have plans for anything, any other stories set in this universe, (laughs) or maybe you know, we we kind of joked about you know Stephen King with Maine, but. Uh, there are some authors who have a tendency to use similar settings, if not the same setting, even if the stories are not necessarily connected. Do you have other ideas for this story environment, or are you ready to move on to something else and, and do a different kind of story? 
Are you staying in horror or, or you're going to branch out? I, I definitely will say horror is my first, my first love. <laughs> um, and uh, if that sounds weird, I don't know. But um, no, I, I definitely would like to stick with horror. I think to me, just like I said, always being a fan of it, um, the experiences I've had, it, it's almost like, it's almost like being, you know, and again, this might sound weird, almost like it feels like I'm home when I'm writing horror. It doesn't feel like I'm trying to write something that I, I don't know. Like I, I don't see myself ever writing like a, a comedy or a romance or a Western, any, any weird, you know, other genres like that. Um, so if I were to write again, I'd say there's, there's probably like a 90, you know, 9% chance it would be horror. Um, what I, what I did in the third book, which, which tentatively will be out next April, um, I, I did a little bit of world building and I've had some ideas over the years of things like that have just kind of like, you know, had the light bulb go on in my head. Like maybe I could come up with something interesting, maybe not. Let me let me get the Preternatural trilogy done, and then I can you know toss around something else. But um, there there is potential for four, let's say maybe four of the five spinoffs based in that same world, but dealing with different circumstances, different concepts. You know that could possibly happen, and a lot of that really depends on how the how the the initial trilogy is received. Like if if people like it and they're happy with that, and that's that's it. I mean, that's I'd be happy. I'm like I said, the fact I did, I was I'm published three times is, is like a, it's like a mind blowing thing. Like, wow, three times. But, um, but yeah, if, if there's a demand for it and I have some really good ideas, I'll, I'll absolutely keep rolling with, uh, you know, these other spinoffs. Now, have you considered submitting it to a publishing imprint like Tor or Bayon or, or Delray or I don't even know. Yeah, I had out reached Orbit? out and that's, that's um, why I ended up going the self-published route. I had reached out to probably about. And I'm not making this number up, probably like 30 or 40 literary agents over the years. Um, and a handful of them just responded. They, they weren't the nicest people. Um, and again, I'm not going to like name drop or, you know, give any details, but it was very discouraging um, because I have no experience in the literary world. Um, I have no family members in it or, or friends or colleagues, anyone with any experience. So I was really going at this alone. And as we were just kind of joking before, I'm coming from a science background. I, this is this is like telling me I'm going to the moon. Like, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, um, I I really tried hard to to reach out to some of the the bigger names out there, and like I said, literary agents and um, smaller presses, and they just they either didn't respond or they they were just not not very nice with the reception of it. Oh. And all I was doing at that point was just asking questions as far as like how does the process work. Is this something you would be interested in? You know, do you, would you like a sample just to see? I was just really kind of um, like probing of sorts. Sure. And it, it wasn't a good experience. So I just ended up doing the self-published route. Right. And, and I, I know that um, Bayon has a submissions. Uh, a, <clears throat> I don't know if it's an open submissions thing, but they've got a they've got a thing on their website. And I know Jumpmaster Press, we just had a story that we ran last week. Jumpmaster Press has uh, opened up for submissions as well is one of the reasons why I was asked because you have mm-hmm. these you have these self-published books and it doesn't have the same stigma as it did five years ago, ten years ago uh, and and you have you know I'm the owner of the IP, I control everything, I have all of the rights. I don't have to worry about you know parceling out or dealing with legal or or, or marketing. 
But the marketing of the book also factors into that because you're self-published, you're a one-man show, you're having to do all of it. You're you're having to handle the the PR and the press and the design and getting the cover art and and hiring editors and all of that other stuff. So there's no support system there as you right. would get with a, a traditional publisher, let's say. So it 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 always impresses me uh, when you have these independent creators like yourself and a lot of the and a lot of the people that are crowdfunding indie comics now, uh, authors who are self-publishing their books in series, and it's not just a one-off. It's you know one, two, three, twelve books or whatever. You look at you know somebody like Brian Polito, for example, who's been who's been publishing his you know his comics through I think Kickstarter for probably a good ten or twelve years now. Oh wow. And it it makes me wonder about the landscape. But how much of the how much of it is a challenge for you doing it all yourself? What kind of what kind um, of obstacles have you run into? So with the first book, um, again, that was the the point where I just said I'm going to self publish. Um, and at that point, I just figured, let me get an editor, somebody just to look it over. Um, let me get a cover artist. And th- th- I did run into a lot of issues because, okay, I, I could have published it with other avenues, but it was, you know, they would charge you for the work and I, I didn't have the budget at that point. Um, so I got the cover artist and um, that worked out okay. There were some timeline issues and, and other little things that made it uh, probably more difficult than it should have been. And the experience with the editor ended up not being what I wanted it to be either. And, and I ended up having to make majority of the, changes myself. Um, and again, I'm not coming from a, a literary background. So there's, right. you know, book one, when you read it, that is, you know, the editor had a few notes, but like, I'd say 95, if not a little bit more percent is, is just me um, doing it myself. And I had to learn from the ground up how to, you know, format it to KDP on Amazon, um, you know, how to um, try to do self-marketing, um, become a member on things, uh, platforms like Goodreads and Bookbub. And it, 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 it's really like having two full-time jobs, just trying to get your book up and running. Right. And I remember I sold about 20 copies and I was really disappointed because the process was, was extraordinarily stressful. Um, I had spent hundreds of hours trying to learn it, learn it and do everything myself. And I, and I'm, again, I'm very proud of it for that reason, because I really, learned it from the ground up. But when it came time to do the next book, I just, I, you know, had a long discussion with my, my, my wife, and my accountant. And I just said, you know, as much as it's going to sting to, you know, put the money out, um, I really want to see this through. I really want to have this done right. And I had spent a few months looking at different PR firms and different, um, I call them like creative groups and I, I found Smith Publicity, and they've been awesome. They completely brought me back from any of those bad feelings I had towards the literary world after my first experience. Um, um, I worked with, with a, a handful of people from them, and they've been fantastic. Um, the past year, I've worked with them. And the uh, creative group, um, who's led by Bethany Brown, the Cadence Group, they basically handled the, the formatting of book two, the editing, the, the you know, 
pretty much every other avenue aside from the the, um, the PR stuff was Cadence, and they they you know I'll put them on that same pedestal, as Smith. Between the two groups of those people, I, I couldn't have asked for better people to work with, and they really made the experience like night and day. And I'm very thankful to them. And I and I I know I sound like a broken record, and I say yeah. this to them all the time. I just I'm continually like thankful and, and blessed that I found those those people I really am. Well, have you talked to them about reformatting the first book then to kind of bring it in line with the second one and, and reissue that or what's the, what's the plan there? Yeah. So we, we um, at this point had had some discussions about just redoing the first book before the second one, which, you know, Preternatural Evolution was coming out, but we came to the conclusion like um, leave it for now. Let's get the second book and then the third book out. And if, again, if the, there's enough demand for it if the, because again, it's, it's expensive. Um, if oh, the yeah. budget is there, if the demand is there, and if I'm willing to go through with it, we would potentially re-release the entire trilogy in like one singular omnibus kind of edition. And we would, you know, potentially re-edit the first book, um, have it more uh, in tune with the, the format of the second and what the third book will be as well. And then we would obviously, you know, be changing the the cover and such, but it could be like a whole redo and a re-release of the whole thing i was i was reading uh looking at an interview with you earlier and you're talking about you know vampires and the and the and the tropes that come through because horror i think horror in science fiction but horror more uh, is you have a lot of tropes that keep showing up over and over and over and over and over and the the challenge is always to either avoid those tropes or turn them on their ear and you know subvert expectations as we hear all the time when you're putting this thing together and you have uh you have a vampire like character was there anything you were trying to avoid in in terms of the stereotypes i mean you talk about you know, Dracula is this prototypical vampire and there's influence pretty much across the board. But were, were, were there specific things that you wanted to avoid in, in the Preternatural series that you managed to avoid? Um, I, I would say the biggest thing I wanted to avoid was, was having my vampires, um, and hopefully I can use this word, uh, but be sexual creatures. Sure. Um, I understand that it's very easy to see how they could be interpreted that way. I think that's a really, um, you know, it, it makes sense the way they're just, they're very charismatic. They're, you know, they can be very, you know, certain ways they're, you know, normally in like movies and stuff, they tend to be like attractive and, you know, uh, animal you know, magnetism and all these things. Yeah. What's that? Animal magnetism and such. Exactly. Right. And they can, you know, sometimes, um, you know, hypnotize people. So I get it. Um, but at the same time, I, I didn't want to write a book where, okay, this vampire falls in love with that vampire. This vampire loves a human. And now there's a, does that person turn into one or do they, you know, risk dying alone now? And it, it just, to me, has felt like it's been done so much. And, and it's not to put down anyone who's done that, but I didn't want to go that route. I wanted to really make my book something unique in a sense. I want my vampire to, to, you know, as I said earlier, be a vampire, but also progressing into something a little more grand, which you would, you'll see in books two and three. 
Now, as as the as the books evolve, as the story evolves, do you have any particular leanings toward uh, any kind of redemption arc for your villains? Are, are we going to see anything like that? Or are they just becoming some some kind of a bigger type of monster? I mean, I I don't want to get into spoiler territory and ruin it for the third book, right. but. <laughs> Do, do you have when when you set these things out and you start to outline and you start to to plan your stories? I'm assuming that you have a destination in mind for for where you're going to go. How, what process are you going through in order to set those pieces in place? You you want to do this and not this. How what's your how much of that world building is involved before you ever sit down and start with the story itself? So again, the first book was really its own thing. Um, the second book wasn't even a thought when the first book was completed. And so that, you know, at no point did I go back and change the, the first book to, to reflect, you know, what the second book and eventual third book were going to be. Right. Um, what I did notice was as I was writing the sequel, um, I remember there were certain things from book one that were already there that I said, you know, this has more mileage left in it. I can, I can really take this character a little bit darker, a little bit deeper, um, you know, really make some, some creative arc situations where it's not just what people are going to anticipate, but something a little more unique. Um, and the third book specifically, um, and again, not to give anything away, that is the first time that you really get the full scope of, our, our main villain, who's, who's Blackheart, um, the main scope of his mindset, his um, eventual arc to his character, um, you know, is he going to be evil forever? Is he going to find, uh, you know, peace at some point? It, it really just all leads up to that definitive conclusion at the end of book three, um, as does, again, the, the main characters, you know, Christian and David and Alexandra, they all um, progress certain ways you know, throughout the three books. And there are, um, you know, little nuggets scattered throughout that you can kind of pick up on. Like if a line seems out of place in book one and it doesn't go anywhere, then that means you should probably read book two because you'll, you'll get it. Um, and going back to the mental health stuff, my, my OCD doesn't let me leave any, any loose ends. So there's, <laughs> there's no just big plot hole sitting there for somebody to start picking at. So when you introduce Chekhov's gun, it's actually going to get fired at some point now. Huh? Exactly right. <laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned the possibility of some spinoff stories and and some other things taking place in this universe, but there's also the possibility that these you know these three are it and it's done. But you've also said you know you're going to stick with horror. What about horror draws you in? What is it that you, that makes you want to to create in that space as opposed to say military science fiction or dragons and swords and and that sort of thing i think it's just like i said i grew up with it i've i've seen so many horror movies i just i just love it um it is it is you know much like what i do for a living it is a passion um and it's where i'm comfortable with i feel you know I feel like there's a lot, I, a lot more I'd be able to do in the horror genre than I would any other genre. Um, I just, I feel like there's, you know, 
the characters I could specifically write. And again, I'm not putting, saying, if this comes across like I'm putting down other genres or people, that's not my, my ambition here. I just feel like for me personally, with, like I said, my background, my, my passion for horror, um, I would want to just keep kind of feeding that. I would really want to just keep exploring that. And, and again, looking at like, okay, maybe I write a book about, you know, uh, you know, killer dolls or killer lawn gnomes or just, you know, what, whatever off the wall kind of thing I could, I could pull out of the woodwork. Um, you know, I, I, I really think I have enough in me to come up with some interesting takes on these, these abominations, these monsters, these, these horrendous circumstances where you'd be genuinely curious, like, how could an author make that story work? It seems a little different. So I'm curious or, you know, just kind of pique the interest of people. And also for me as the author, you know, having fun with it. And, and really wanting to write it. not just trying to write to write to, you know, meet a quote or whatever, but really having those ideas and being passionate about it and wanting to, to develop it to its full extent. There was an interview you did a while back and there, and, and the, the question came up of what, what horror trope you would want to erase. And I want to get a little philosophical here for, for a second. Because yes, you said that the one one that you want that you would like to get rid of this idea that God is not present when evil is around. I'm I'm paraphrasing that a little bit. Yes, but it got me thinking because yeah, uh, I'd I'd had recently I had a, a conversation with my son about something similar along these lines. This idea of why, if there's a God, why do all of these bad things happen? And, and along those same lines, you know, you, you can't assume that God has just walked away when, when something terrible happens, you know, a, a tsunami in Haiti, for example, or an earthquake or a serial killer or whatever, whatever the, the terrible, awful, no good thing is. How would you handle a story like that if you're going to get into the the religious and the philosophical and the theological? What kind of an approach do you think would work in order to eliminate that trope or take that trope and and put it out on its ear? Because you look at the, you look at the book of Job, and it very clearly in there says, yes, God lets certain things happen, but he sets limits. He says, you know, this far, no farther. You can't go, you can't go past this line. How would you, how would you incorporate that into a story? Do you think? Let me pick your brain a little bit. Uh, no, that's fine. Um, books two, not so much the first one. I mean, religion is a part of book one, but book two really veers a little bit, kind of a hard pivot into it more. Um, book three is very, very strongly related to faith. Um, and like I said, I, I grew up in the church. Um, I was confirmed, communed, baptized. Um, you know, I, I went through the process and, and I did huge amounts of, of volunteer work for many years. Um, and I, I did that for, for, again, several churches over the course of my life. And I, because of my life circumstances, I was very angry at God for a long time. And I stopped going to church. I didn't pray. I didn't want to hear anything about religion. I was just, I was, I was at odds with the almighty, I guess you could say. Um, and as I, I kind of matured and got older and, you know, began having my own family, um, I had some very interesting things happen to me. And 
what those specific instances made me realize was, you know, you don't have to, you know, subscribe to any specific religion. Um, you don't have to be like, I'm a, almost like saying like I'm a Democrat or Republican. You don't have to say I'm Lutheran or Catholic or whatever. Um, I'm more of a spiritual person. Um, I respect everybody's individual beliefs, whether it's something they've made up, something that's, again, a, a, a you know, a, a solid established uh, religious view. I'm very open to all of it and I'm not judgmental of any of it. Um, from, from my dealings, you know, with, let's say, you know, God over the course of my life, I do think that things like life and death and terrible events and miracles, I don't think anything just happens by chance because I think, I think for the extent that a creator of that magnitude went to make everything that is, to just leave things to chance, logically, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, so, you know, like I said, I've had really terrible things happen to me. I've seen people around me have really horrible things happen. And and that doesn't, I don't want it to sound like I'm putting those people down saying like, oh, well, God's there, just get over it. Um, I think a lot of times people may see God almost like an insurance policy, like, okay, something's bad. Why is he not here? But they haven't acknowledged all the good things that they maybe haven't even taken note of that have happened prior to that event. Right. And even going down to my science background, no matter if you're going down to cells, atoms, the smallest particles in existence, there is always a balance. There is always a positive and a negative. And again, things like death and misfortune, I think those are there for a reason. And I don't have the answers as to why they're there or why certain things happen. Um, But like I said, from my personal experience, I do think God is there. I think when bad things happen or what we interpret as bad things, um, he's he's sitting there with it. He's there. He's never turning his head. He's never missing a note. Um, So I think sometimes we need to just kind of reestablish our our faith a bit and understand it's he's not just our on-call insurance policy. He's always there. We just maybe need to to rein in our expectations of what we think he should be doing. I you think know, we should be trust. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think I think that a lot of times when when you look at that and, and having gone through a few uh, uh, negative circumstances myself that are challenges to faith, one of the things that I have had to remind myself and and in conversations remind other people that the bad thing is happening not necessarily because you're a bad person or you did a bad thing. It's not necessarily you're right. being punished. Uh, a lot of times you're being prepared. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where this is happening to you so that when this other thing happens, you're able to help other people or you're able to handle it better or, you know, various different things. You know, this whole idea God moves in mysterious ways. The and and I and I agree with you as as far as you know this notion of God winding up the gal you know winding up the universe and just letting it go doesn't make any sense. There are there are reasons why things happen the way they do. We may not always understand it. We may not always like it. But the this this notion of you know when bad things happen, God's not there. I I. I have a tough time with that 
showing up in stories because, you know, like you said, that's not the case. God is always around even when the, the bad things are happening. I think that those circumstances exist in order to give us those opportunities to turn back to him, to sit there and say, Absolutely. okay, this is something, because, you know, the, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it says God never gives you anything more than what you can handle. And he always gives you a way that you can handle it. So the the idea is, you know, yes, God's letting this thing happen, but here's the door over here. Just knock on the door, and here we go. So you know, I, I'm I'm interested to see how how that plays out in your stories because there, to be honest, you know, you look at faith based stories, you know, and a lot of people look at them with a little bit of a side eye because they they have a tendency to get not necessarily preachy, but the the faith based parts sometimes they kind of they kind of get in the way of themselves. Right. And uh, you know, you mentioned you know Democrat Republican and and the politics and all of that. And I'm looking at your Twitter feed, and honestly, I'm not sure that you're doing it right because it's cats and it's and it's cooking, and it's other it's other people's projects and it's your projects. And I don't see any politics here, Peter. Um, that I, I, I that's a missed opportunity, I think, right here, right because. You're you're completely avoiding the whole cancel culture mess, either either being part of the cancel culture or being canceled. What's up with that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think um, I think at this point, there's things are so oversaturated. Specifically in politics, I think it's so oversaturated these days. Um, you know, I have my beliefs. Like I said, just like with religion, I have my thoughts on politics. Yeah. Um, I'm always willing to have the conversation with people. I, 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 I'm not judgmental. I try not to be. Um, but, you know, it's just one of those things. It, it is what it is. You can believe what you want. That's your, that's your right. That's your privilege. Um, but I, I, you know, it's, there's so much out there right now. Like, you know, why am I going to just make that a part of my, you know, yeah. my, um, my writing and, you know, and all that where it doesn't necessarily need to be. So there are some authors, and, and this has come up over the years, with especially with regard to the Hugo, there are some authors who are complaining that a, there's there's a, an infusion of message fiction as opposed to let's just tell a, a, an entertaining story. And the complaint about uh, some of the stuff that's going on in the comics industry now, you know, we've seen Kelly, you know, Kelly Sue DeConnick recently saying that comics should just be the R&D division of, of film and TV. And I was like, um, why, why write a comic book if all you're doing is, is just doing a pitch for, for Netflix? You know, comic books should be a standalone, you know, on their own. Right. In your experience, and I and I know that you know you've done your three books. You haven't done a lot yet, and the experiences that you've had with the literary side of things, as far as agencies and publishers, have you run into any kind of a of a you know, something that gives you a sense one way or the other that publisher traditional publishers are looking for specific types of stories are are they leaning into the message fiction or are they are there some out there maybe you think 
it's okay to tell a rip-roaring yarn with, you know, guns and babes and and blasters and and dragons and spaceships and rick'em rock'em action. Um, from from my experience, um, just like I said, the few dealings I had with with the agencies and the agents, um, they are very specific, and I'm sure a lot of that has to do with you know, the timing and what, what is trending at a given moment, um, you know, what's, what's selling on their end, um, just, and they're, they're looking at a lot of variables. So I, I get that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely see a lot more, a lot more freedom with the self-published, um, people. And I've met so many, just hundreds of these super talented, almost, I want to call them unknown because I feel like that's a put down, but just these, lesser-known authors um, on, on uh, like I said, Goodreads, which is a, which is a fantastic platform. Um, and they're so talented, and they tell these really fun stories. And, you know, um, guys like Carlton, Carlton Mellick writes these books like Cannibals and Candyland, um, and, and books that you just read for fun. And they're like 100 pages, and they're insane and off the wall, but it's fun. Um, you know, would you ever see that on a New York Times bestselling list? Probably not, um, but for somebody like myself, um, and I'm sure there's obviously plenty of others. Um, there's just uh, there's so many authors, there's so many good ideas out there, but it definitely has gotten very specific in the literary world. And that I think even like from what I understand, even music is a similar way too. Like if it, if it's not what they these higher ups think is going to click on a given moment, they're they're not they're not going to give it a second look. It's just you know they'll brush it to the side, and it's a a missed opportunity for both the, you know, the artist and the, um, you know, people making those decisions. So, yeah. What have you personally gotten out of all of this process as far as realization about yourself, some self-actualization? Is there, is there a, is there something kind of an unexpected benefit to putting these books together, I mean, you, like you said, the first one has has sold a, you know a number of copies, but you know it's it's you know New York Times bestseller list we already know is is just kind of one of those things where uh, it's the title is the title may be on the list, but it might not necessarily be selling anything. It's you know it's not what you know, it's who you know. Exactly. But have you come uh, have you come away from this process? with any, any new insights into yourself? Yeah. Um, as we were talking about before, I, I definitely feel like the, the trilogy itself is very therapeutic on a lot of levels for me. Um, on both, let's say, religious wavelengths, uh, mental health wavelengths. There was a lot of things I resolved through my characters. Um, and that's a good thing because I want to write characters that I feel are true to the story. Like I should understand the characters. I should know how they're feeling, what they would do in a given moment um, and how they would progress in a given story um, and, and what their conclusion ideally should be, mm-hmm. um, even if it's not something you would expect. Um, so it definitely gave, gave me a lot of clarity. I think I've um, made a lot of peace with God over the years writing these books I definitely view the world a little differently, um, you know, developing these stories. Um, and I, I think probably the, the biggest thing was, you know, 
my, my wife and I don't have any help. And there were many years where I wasn't able to read for enjoyment and such. And developing these stories has allowed me to get back into that. And I'm very, very happy and very pleased. Like I said, I've met so many awesome, talented people on Goodreads. I've read so many great books in the past, you know, year and a half. Um, books I've wanted to read for years. I just didn't have the time and energy to do. Um, so it really gave me back, you know, reading, which is something I used to do when I was much younger before a lot of the real hard harder traumas kind of settled in, um, kind of gave me that back um, for enjoyment, which is also, you know, having to do with my own personal self-care and branches into mental health. And like I said, it, it really helped me process some things on a religious level too. Um, and it's it's also given me an opportunity to help other other authors, um, which, I, which I feel very passionately about because I know the process from the ground up and I'm working with good people, but there's, like I said, there's people out there who, who don't have the resources to do that. So if I can read their books, help them with the, with along with, uh, you know, the publishing process or um, certain platforms to be on, um, give them a good review that could help them sell extra copies. Like I, I'm, you know, obviously if my books made a million dollars, that would be awesome, but I'm not in this for the money. I'm not in this to be Mr. Popular, you know, like I, I, I feel passionately about my stories. I think they're good enough to really share with everybody. And I hope people, you know, get something out of them as well. Um, but I really am, you know, humbled by the fact that I'm, you know, can help other people who maybe these just super talented people, like I said, who don't have the resources or the um, the know-how um, or the contacts. Like I, I really would like to help them along, and you know, I, I hope that, you know, that that's definitely probably the longest-term thing I want to see from publishing all three of these books is is you know helping young authors. I really do. Well, that is a noble goal. Now, you mentioned your wife. How involved is she in all of this? Is she is she sitting on the sidelines as your cheerleader, rah, rah, Peter, get them done, and, and she's just waiting for you to finish those books? Or is she involved in all, you know, a beta reader? Is she a proofreader? Is she, is she helping you in any way, or she's just there for, for moral and emotional support? Well, she's there. She supports me in a lot of different ways. She, she's like my crutch. You know, like I said, I have a lot of injuries. I'm pretty banged up these days, but... <laughs> Um, you know, she's, she's definitely my crutch and helps me in a lot of different ways. And I'm very lucky to have her. Um, and I probably have bored her the death of these books for a very long time <laughs> in the 10 years we've been married. Um, but no, she's, she's always been, you know, kind enough to read the books. She's given me her honest opinion. It's never just something to like coddle my feelings. If, if something didn't work, she'll be like, you know, this, I, I would take that out or I don't think people are going to like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, but she's always been the first person to read the books and, um, like I said, give me her honest opinion. Uh, she helps me a lot with my social media because I, I, I really, I don't have much, I'm still very old school in the sense. I still like write my checks by, you know, by hand. Um, so she's more tech savvy and she helps me with her, my social media quite a bit. Um, but she's, yeah, she's, she's been really great in a lot of ways. Like I said, she's very supportive. I'm lucky to have her. And, um, you know, even to this day when I bring up the books, because she's the only person who's read all three of them at this point. Some of those days I'll catch her off guard and I get to hear, are you talking about this again? <laughs> <laughs> so, so she tolerates me too, which is always a, a big plus. Yes. Well, and then of course there's Moose. 
I can't forget moose. Can't forget moose. All right. So you mentioned social media. We've pulled up your uh, your Twitter account here before. You've also got a, an author page over on Facebook, uh, yes, which is your your brand page. It's not your personal account. So are mm-hmm. you in? Are you on any of the other socials? Are you are you doing any of the alt tech stuff, or you just just Facebook and Twitter, and that's it? Are you doing Instagram, Pinterest? Where else are are people? Um, yeah, my, obviously find? Facebook and Twitter. Um, Instagram, it's um, at P Topside, and then I have a Goodreads author page. Um, and each book obviously has its own page on page on Goodreads as well. And then I also have a, a book bub page. Um, as well, so I'm 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 out there. <laughs> I'm not familiar with BookBub. I'll have to look that one up. That's that's a new one for me. So, is that is that similar to Goodreads? It's uh, it, it's definitely I would I would say it's a little bit of a lesser platform than Goodreads. It's it's more or less you have to like you're not just an author. You're considered like a partner when you okay. sign up with them, um, and then you just it's, it's just mainly about like discovering authors, maybe commenting on reviews. But there's not really a lot of like message boards or a lot of the um, offerings that Goodreads has. Gotcha. All right. So right now you're working on the third book, Preternatural uh, 2, um, Evolution, has Mm -hmm. just come out. It was released last month, I believe. So where can people find this book? If we want to check these things out because it's self-published, where are we going to be able to find them? Uh, it's on Amazon. So if you just search either, you know, Peter Topside or, or Preternatural Evolution, um, it should come up. And I have um, the original book and then Preternatural Evolution linked. So let's say if you find one, it has a little click that's, uh, you know, uh, hyperlink that says, you know, book two, uh, two of two or one of two. And you can kind of navigate from there and see, um, you know, the reviews. And, and Goodreads also has, you know, reviews as well on it. Um, so if you just want to check it out, get an idea. And and even if you have questions, you know, again, I'm on Goodreads. You can ask, you know, I have the ask author thing wide open. So, you know, always feel free to check in and I'll, I'll have a good back and forth with you. Now, is there a possibility of a preternatural comic book? Are we, are we thinking actually, maybe a Netflix deal here in the next couple yeah. of years? <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of, like I said, I'd be curious to see if somebody had other ways of reimagining um, the town and some of the characters, maybe telling the story of, other people in the town is my, the, the main stories happening. Like there could be some cool spinoffs, but I'd be curious, but let's say maybe somebody else's, you know, ideas of that could be. Um, but my wife had did mention to me at one point as did my original graphic artist, she said, this would be a cool graphic novel, which I'd never entertained the thought of, but it's, you know, never say never, who knows? Well, and, and as much as that's blowing up over on, on both Indiegogo and Kickstarter, there could be quite a bit of potential there. Even if it's even if it's just an adaptation of the novel, but it could also be an original, uh, original story set in that world. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It'd be a cool thing to, to get right. into. Well, we are looking forward to seeing what else you come out with, and of course, when Preternatural Three comes out, we'll have you back and we'll talk about it. And uh, I'm expecting to get these first two books here in the office at some point here very soon. And we'll add those to the queue for reviews and get those out. And uh, we'll be talking soon on other things, I'm sure. Absolutely. I'd love it. All right. Peter Topside, thank you very much for being here today, sir. The book, Preternatural Evolution, it's out now. You can find it on Amazon. And uh, coming up uh, tonight here on Sci-Fi For Me TV, a brand new Salacious Crumbs. We'll have all of the latest news 
from the Star Wars universe. And then on Thursday, uh, we will be cussing and discussing same over on a new Ranker Pit. Both of those shows at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central. And then we're back here tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern for another session here live from the bunker. I have no idea what we're going to do tomorrow, but we will be here and hope you are too. So that's going to do it for us. Thank you very much for being here, everyone. Don't forget to hit the like button on the way out. If you are not subscribed yet, we do invite you to do that. Have your notifications turned on. Check us out over on Odyssey as well. And uh, we also have a Twitch channel. At some point, we'll start our watch parties again. And... Uh, Remember, there are four lights. Bye. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. 